Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Thank you for all the amazing messages I've been getting congratulating me on the show's one-year anniversary. It means so much that you take time out of your day to say something so kind. And those of you who follow me on social media know that I was searching for a couple of books this week. The Pan Book of Horror Stories was a series that ran in the UK and I believe in Canada from 1959 to 1989. And I was looking for book one and book four after finding stories from each of those on a list of the scariest short stories that someone has ever read. And it was printed in an Irish newspaper or a blog. I can't remember which one, but it was definitely from Ireland. So these were a little harder to track down because they were only printed in the UK and possibly Canada. Um, But thank you so much to everybody who found resources for me to track them down. I bought... I seriously had so much great help tracking them down. I ordered the fourth book, and this week's episode features two stories from it. I ordered it from an Etsy shop, by the way, called uh, T Brophy Books. It looks like trophy books, but you put a B after the T. Anyway, they had a lot of cool stuff there. In fact, I was I've added a few things to my wish list. And for being a paperback printed in 1963. It is in impeccable condition, so I definitely think I will be giving them my business again. Um, I'm an avid collector of antique books, and it pained me to even open this one. (laughs) It literally, you guys, it literally looks like it had never been cracked open, and it must have been sitting on a shelf somewhere since it was first printed, because or first purchased, because it even still has the original 85 cent price tag on it, and For those of you who know, well, I mean, not just antique book collectors, everybody knows paperbacks fall apart way quicker, way more quickly than hardcovers. So it's amazing to see it in such good condition. I searched high and low online for one of these stories, and I really didn't want to have to handle it that much, but... All I could find it on was lists of stories that are that say that it is in the Creative Commons, but no digital copies. So unfortunately, I had to actually open it and touch it and turn its pages. And I did wash my hands. I didn't wear gloves, but I did wash my hands. So hopefully I didn't have too many oils on my hands when I was handling it. And oh my god, you guys now know how much more of a nerd I am than you already knew I was. Anyway, I'm traveling a whole lot in the next few weeks, so hopefully all my scheduled episodes will go smoothly. I'll keep you updated if there are any issues, but there really shouldn't be. I'm just going to schedule them. Hopefully they'll come out. They won't be as timely, and you won't have me rambling like this for hours before I get to the actual stories. Okay. Oh, 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 oh. before I begin again. Sorry. More housekeeping. I'm almost done and I'm mostly done with the latest Guided Nightmare for Patreon. There are just a few kinks to work out. Hopefully I will have that done before I leave again next week. I'm really hoping so. Basically it is, I had a really crazy week. My car was in the shop and I didn't get as much done as I was hoping I could. I would because a lot of other stuff came up. That was my phone going off. That is very unprofessional. And yes, that is a sound from the Witcher series. Anyway, I didn't get as much done as I was hoping this week. I'm leaving literally tomorrow morning to be out of town until Sunday. I will get back Sunday night, and then I will be leaving again next Wednesday. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I will be 
really diligent. I will try to have it out. I will not promise you just because I don't know because life hit me with a bunch of weird stuff this week that I didn't expect. So I'm not going to make any promises, but I will try my darndest to get it out. Plus two scheduled episodes that I also have to finish (laughs) or two scheduled regular episodes. So bear with me. This has been the longest intro ever. I'm so sorry. Enough of me prattling on. First up this week is the reason I sought after this book. And it's a story by Septimus Dale called The Little Girl Eater. The girder that lay across his shoulders was gradually pressing Mason's body down into the sand. He could no longer remember how long he had been lying there, beneath the old coal jetty, only that it was a long time. The tide had been halfway out when he had taken the shortcut beneath it, clambering over the slippery girders. He knew that the tide must have turned by this time, and would soon be coming back in. He knew that unless he could remove the fallen girder from his shoulders, the tide would come in over him. Once more, he braced himself in a desperate effort to try and dislodge the thing. It would not budge. He lay still, forcing himself to reason. The girder lay across his trunk. His head and arms poked out from one end of it. His legs were free at the other. Something was wrong with his back, but he did not know what. There was blood in the puddle of water near his left elbow. He was waiting for someone to come and find him. He had not much longer to spare if he was to be freed in time to escape the sea that was creeping up behind him. Yet it was a lonely beach and a cold blustery day. It was early April, and there were not many visitors in the town. Someone would come. Someone must come. He had to conserve his strength. That was important. He was feeling sick and weak. Waves of nausea creeping over him. He could no longer move the bottom half of his legs. He heard the caw of a gull, a wail of despair. He must force himself to reason a way out. It was too heavy to lift. He had tried to lever himself forward, using one of the upright girders that his hands could reach. It was no use. It was dark and silent beneath the pier. Thin banks of concrete crisscrossed the sand. The upright girders were built solidly into the banks. It was a complex structure. A nightmare of crisscrossed metal stretching for 20 yards on each side of him. He tried calling to start with. His voice was weak and came echoing off the girders around him, reminding him that he was alone on the beach, that no one could possibly hear him. He kept calling long after that realization, measuring time by counting to a thousand between each series of hails. But it was no use. He gave up, dispirited, too weak to continue, convinced that no one would pay any heed to his call. 
A crab slipped out from under one of the fallen girders. It hovered uncertainly, seeming unaware of his presence, its claws clanging back and forth. Then it changed its mind and fled back to the safety of the hiding place beneath the girder, scraping the sand away from its hiding place as it did so. Perhaps there was still hope. Perhaps, like Bruce with the spider, the crab had come to give him a message of hope. He looked more closely at the concrete banks. The sand had risen high around those nearest to him. Perhaps if he were to burrow downwards, instead of trying to force himself upright, he could bring the girder to rest on the concrete and dig himself sufficient clearance beneath it to crawl clear. It all depended on what lay beneath. The banks of concrete were isolated, independent of each other, and the sand went down to a sufficient depth before meeting a rock floor. He could do it. He needed a foot or so. He brought his hands as far back down his body as he could manage and began to scrape the sand away, rather as a dog digs for a bone. Now and then, his fingers rasped against jutting rock as he worked round the outline of his body as far as his hands could reach. He could feel the skin tearing, feel the blood warm on his hands as it flowed from his nails. Miranda was not a very pretty little girl. She sat in the back of her mummy's friend Johnny's car and looked out of the window. It was a funny, bumpy road, she thought, running down between wind bushes and a barbed wire fence. Not really a motor car road at all. It was not a road that Daddy would have taken his car along because Daddy didn't like bumps. They made his car sick in its tummy. Mummy's friend Johnny was nice, and he didn't mind where he took his car, which was all nice and shiny, not like Daddy's car at all. Mummy's friend Johnny was taking Miranda to see the sea. Don't be silly, Mummy said. Honestly, darling, I mean, you mustn't say that sort of thing in front of the child. She doesn't understand. Mummy lit a cigarette. Little you know, she's repeated things I've said to her daddy before now. What things? Miranda asked from the back seat. Don't interrupt, Miranda, said Mummy crossly. You mustn't interrupt when big people are talking. We can send the child down to play on the beach. We'll park by the old pier. Nobody ever comes down that way, so there's a very little chance of our being spotted. It'll be just like old times again. She mightn't be safe, Mummy said. Yes, I would, Miranda said at once. I'd be very extra, extra special safe. Of course she will, said Johnny, and he stroked Mummy's hair with his free hand. No reason why she shouldn't have her fun while we're having ours, is there? Innocent ears! said Mummy crossly. Won't you ever learn not to speak in front of you-know-who? Johnny laughed and put his hand on Mummy's leg. Mummy slapped it off. Johnny said something in a whisper to Mummy. Not with the child, Johnny. Honestly, she repeats everything if she heard that. 
The car bounced to a stop at the end of the little track, its front facing out along the disused coal pier. There was a shack by the side of the pier gate, and Johnny backed the car into the shade of it. Look, Miranda, said Mummy. There's the lovely sea. Miranda had seen the lovely sea before, and she wasn't unduly impressed. Perhaps there might be something to play with on the beach. She might even venture under the dark, scary pier. May I go play? she asked. You must promise not to go too near the sea, darling, said Mummy. And not to get your nice clothes all messed up with the sand. You are a caution, Johnny said. All right, Mummy, said Miranda, and hopped out of the car. She knew that the longer she waited, the more things Mummy would think of that she wasn't to do. Mummy rested back against Johnny's arm, which held her firmly. I do hope she'll be all right on her own. It would be awful if anything happened to her here. How would I ever explain to Dennis what I was doing out here with you? I should think Dennis would cotton on pretty sharpish, said Johnny with a laugh. Mason could hear the lapping of the water. The numbness had spread. He could no longer feel anything below his waist. He could no longer make any movement with his legs. He lay with his blood-stained hands stretched on the sand before him. The burrowing had finally worn him out. He had scratched and scratched at the sand, building a wall of it around him as he sank into it. He even thought at one time that the girder had shifted a little. Then his hands came up against a rough surface. He changed position tried again with the same result. He made a hole just by his head, the same. The pier had been constructed on a solid concrete base, which the sand had gradually silted over. The concrete banks simply were not high enough to hold the girder above him whilst he edged his way out. He lay with his cheek resting on the bare concrete where he had cleared away the sand. He must think. He had been repeating that to himself for some time now. Even the thought of thinking was becoming negative. What could he do? He summarized his position for the umpteenth time. Logic and method. He must apply logic and method. From the sounds behind him, he deduced that the water was getting considerably nearer to him. He could not have much longer to wait. He was trapped in an improvised coffin formed by the concrete banks and the base of the structure with the girder as a coffin lid. He could not move the girder. It was no use calling for help because there was no one who could possibly hear him. All he could do was to lie in the sand and wait for the sea to creep slowly around him, to cover his hands and then his arms and to rise over his chin, to swirl over his head. Probably he would die long before that. Probably the continued ducking by the incoming waves would finish him. It would be a slow business. A large wave to cover him up. A small one to let him gasp for breath again. There was a tin can lying half submerged in the sand near his right hand. 
The lid was almost pried off. It had a raw edge, a cutting edge. If only he could reach the lid. He could cut his throat with the lid. That would be quicker than drowning, less unpleasant. There would be a moment of startling pain as he drew the rusty tin across his throat, a spurt of blood, and then... nothing. That was how it happened in books. But there were people who failed. You read about them in the papers. People who were rushed to hospital, bleeding to death, slowly taking their time about it. He might faint when the first cut was made. You probably had to know something about it to be able to cut your throat properly the first time. Of course, once the sea was around him, it wouldn't matter terribly. Even if he failed to slit his throat, the sea would finish him off. But it would be better, at least, to have an alternative. The possibility of a quick end if the worst came to the worst, and no rescue appeared. By digging his head and shoulders down into the sand, his fingers could reach out to touch the end of the tin. His fingers were numb and torn by the scrabbling at the concrete. As they scraped against the tin, the cuts which the sand had stopped from bleeding burst open again, and the blood trickled down the back of his hand and began to soak through the sleeve of his shirt. The tin cut a fresh sliver from his thumb but it would not budge. He tried to reach it with his left hand also, but he could not quite make it. He gathered himself for a special effort. The tin had become very important to him. It offered a hope, even though it was only a faint hope, of having some choice in the time and manner of his death. Admittedly, it was a poor choice that lay between the sea. He could hear remorselessly slapping the more remote stanchions of the pier and the cruel edge of a tin that he might press to his throat if he elected for a quick and painful exit rather than a slow, choking one. But it was still a choice. It left him some dignity. He wanted to reach the tin. Miranda stood on the girder and gazed down at the man below her carefully, for she was afraid of dirtying her dress. She hopped down onto the sand. He was a funny sort of man, not like her daddy. She could only see his head and shoulders and his arms, and the rest of him was hidden in a funny hole in the ground. Perhaps he lived under the pier, and only came out like the crabs, when he thought there was nobody about. She stood three or four feet from the man, watching him with round fearful eyes. He was making a curious noise, a gulping, sucking sound, and his fingers were bloody. He had a funny old tin in his hand. His face lay on a little patch of concrete where he had been digging a hole, but he had no spade, and the sand was nasty bloody too. Miranda stood very still, She did not know what to do. Perhaps she should wake the man and ask him what he was doing. She was afraid that he might get cross. Big people got cross very easily. 
Perhaps she could wake him accidentally on purpose. She then decided to sing him a song to see if that would make him wake up. Mason could hear the lapping of the sea. His mind was befuddled and filled with the din of his thoughts, but he could hear something else as well, something nonsensical. He pressed his face against the concrete patch. His mind was going. His mind was going. chance that his mind had conjured up. All right, so he was going crazy. He raised his head and began to sing with the other voice, the other voice inside him. Three green bottles sitting on the wall. If one green bottle should accidentally fall, there'd be two green bottles sitting on the wall. The other voice stopped. Then he saw Miranda. She was standing there in her pretty frock, looking down at him. A child, but another person. It was all over. All over. He had only to speak to this child and he would be safe. He was going to escape the sea. He raised his hands towards her. He opened his mouth, but the words would not come. She jumped quickly over the girders and ran away. He began to shout after her. Anything to attract the attention of the people who were looking after her. She would tell someone. Surely she would tell someone about him. Miranda ran up the shore to the car. She clambered up to the gravel that led up to the pier. She had something to tell Mummy. Mummy was seated half in and half out of the front seat of the car, vainly trying to fix up her shattered face. Johnny, Mummy's friend, came down the path to meet Miranda. "'Enjoy yourself, then,' he said, bending down to speak to her. "'What did you think of the big blue sea?' Miranda looked at him. She wasn't certain of Johnny somehow. Nice, she said. There's big fishes and boats and... Johnny went on in his talking to little girl's voice that Miranda knew and disliked. I want to speak to Mummy, please, she said, edging her way past him. There you see, always wants her Mummy, said Mummy, holding out her arms. Come on, Miranda, love. Come to Mummy. Good thing she didn't come to Mummy a little sooner, said Johnny with a grin. Mummy might have had a bit of very tricky explaining to do. Don't pay attention to him, darling, said Mummy. Mummy was looking very pretty. Listen to your Mummy, Johnny mimicked. There's a man beneath the pier and we were singing, said Miranda. You shouldn't say things like that. How often do I have to tell you? 
She repeats things to her father, the poor little mite. Dennis shouldn't grill the child. He must realize what's going on now anyway without having to resort to that. Still, we don't want poor little Miranda mixed up any more than she has to be. Have it your way, said Johnny, pulling face. There was a man, mummy. What man, darling? A bloody man. Mummy had gone back to fixing her face, but she paused. You mustn't say things like that, darling. It isn't nice. But he was. He was down there in a hole beneath the pier, and he sang a song with me. Darling, I have talked to you before about making up silly stories, haven't I? Only naughty little girls make up silly stories, and their daddies and mummies get very cross with them when they do. We sang ten green bottles, and he shouted, and- Miranda! The little girl could see that Mummy was really very cross indeed. But there had been a man. There had. You shouldn't shout at the child like that, said Johnny, coming back to the car. I could hear you right over there by the gate. She's telling stories again. I'm fed up with her telling stories. I'm not, said Miranda sulkily. There is a man under the pier. Miranda, Mummy said again. Did you say there was a man under the pier? Johnny said, winking at Mummy. Miranda nodded. Johnny, Mummy protested. Leave this to me. He turned back to Miranda. I know all about that nasty man. Do you know what he does, Miranda? No, said Miranda, wide-eyed. He's a little girl eater. He lives down there under the sea, and when the tide is out, he stays there, waiting for silly little girls who go playing there. Then he gobbles them up, just like that. Oh, said Miranda in dismay. He didn't seem to be a very good person at all, somehow. You're as bad as the child, Johnny, said Mummy. You'll give her nightmares. I've put an end to that story anyway, said Johnny, looking at Miranda's shocked face. You won't be hearing any more about men under peers, I fancy. You shouldn't encourage the child. Can I go down on the beach again, Mummy? said Miranda earnestly. Yes, for goodness sake do. I'll never get peace to tidy myself otherwise. Thank you, Mummy. Mummy watched her run off, away down the sand towards the end of the pier, where the water was slowly rising. Watch her get soaked, said Johnny ruefully. Mm, said Mummy. She took the hairpin from her mouth. She's been picking up your language, you know. She said there was a bloody man under the pier to start with. You'll have to be more careful. Her father will want to know where she picked that up from, as it is. Miranda found the flat, heavy stone very hard to manage. But she was almost there now. She shivered. She was afraid that the little girl eater might jump out upon her as she moved through the girders. She knew he was the man who ate little girls, as Mummy's friend Johnny had said. She remembered the blood on his hand, 
and the way he had roared and shouted when she ran away, just like the tigers in the circus. He was a nasty, beastly man who jumped out from beneath the ground and galloped up little girls, like Miranda, who came to play under his pier. She clambered over the last girder. He was still there. Mason saw her. The water was lapping round his ankles. He looked at the little girl. She was wheeling a great, flat stone toward him with great difficulty. The stone was almost as big as the child. You're, you're a good little girl, he said faintly. I want you to do something for me. Qu quickly. The spray had fallen upon the back of his shirt. Miranda wheeled the stone to a stop. She bent down and lifted it as high as she could above Mason's head. Then, she let it drop. His skull was crushed, his face ground into the little patch of concrete that he had scraped clear from sand. Miranda ran away. She was happy. Mummy would be pleased. She had killed the nasty little girl eater. next story is really intriguing. I loved it, and I honestly think it would be a really great movie if someone could adapt that, please. This is by Rosemary Temperley, and it's called Harry. Such ordinary things make me afraid. Sunshine. Sharp shadows on grass, white roses, children with red hair, and the name Harry. Such an ordinary name. Yet, the first time Christine mentioned the name, I felt a premonition of fear. She was five years old, due to start school in three months' time. It was a hot, beautiful day and she was playing alone in the garden, as she often did. I saw her lying on her stomach in the grass, picking daisies and making daisy chains with laborious pleasure. The sun burned on her pale red hair and made her skin look very white. Her big blue eyes were wide with concentration. Suddenly, she looked towards the bush of white roses, which cast its shadow over the grass, then smiled. Yes, I'm Christine, she said. She rose and walked slowly towards the bush, her little plump legs defenseless and endearing beneath the too short cotton skirt. She was growing fast. With my mummy and daddy, 
she said clearly. Then, after a pause, Oh, but they are my mummy and daddy. She was in the shadow of the bush now. It was as if she'd walked out of the world of light and into darkness. Uneasy without knowing why, I called her. Chris, what are you doing? Nothing. Come indoors now. She said, I must go now. Goodbye. Then walked towards the house. Chris, who were you talking to? Harry, she said. Who's Harry? Harry? I couldn't get anything else out of her, so I just gave her some cake and milk and read to her until bedtime. As she listened, she stared out at the garden. Once, she smiled and waved. It was a relief, finally, to tuck her up in bed and feel she was safe. When Jim, my husband, came home, I told him about the mysterious Harry. He laughed. <laughs> oh, she's started that lark, has she? What do you mean, Jim? It's not so very rare for only children to have imaginary companions. Some kids talk to their dolls. Chris has never been keen on her dolls. She hasn't any brothers or sisters. She hasn't any friends her age. So she imagines someone. But why has she picked that particular name? He shrugged. You know how kids pick things up. I don't know what you're worrying about. Honestly, I don't. Nor do I, really. It's just that I feel extra responsible for her. More so than if I were her real mother. I know. But she's alright. Chris is fine. She's a pretty, healthy, intelligent little girl. A credit to you. And to you. In fact, we're both thoroughly nice parents. <laughs> and so modest. <laughs> we laughed together, and he kissed me. I felt consoled. Until the next morning. Again, the sun shone brightly on the small, bright lawn and white roses. Christine was sitting on the grass, cross-legged, staring towards the rose bush, smiling. Hello, she said. I hoped you'd come. Because I like you. How old are you? I'm only five and a piece. I'm not a baby. I'm going to school soon, and I shall have a new dress. A green one. Do you go to school? What do you do then? She was silent for a while. Nodding. Listening. Absorbed. I felt myself going cold as I stood there in the kitchen. Don't be silly. Lots of children have an imaginary companion. I told myself desperately. Just carry on as if nothing were happening. Don't be a fool. But I called Chris in earlier than usual for her mid-morning milk. Can Harry come too? No! The cry burst from me harshly. Goodbye, Harry. I'm sorry you can't come in, but I've got to have my milk. Chris said and then ran towards the house. 
Why can't Harry have some milk too? She challenged me. Who is Harry, darling? Harry's my brother. But Chris, you haven't got a brother. Daddy and Mummy have only got one child. One little girl. That's you. Harry can't be your brother. Harry's my brother. He says so. She bent over the glass of milk and emerged with a smeary top lip. Then she grabbed at the plate of biscuits. At least Harry hadn't spoiled her appetite. I didn't mention any of this to Jim that night. I knew he'd only scoff as he'd done before. But when Christine's Harry fantasy went on day after day, I found it got more and more on my nerves. One Sunday, when Jim heard her at it, he said, I'll say one thing for imaginary companions. They help a child on with her talking. Chris is talking much more freely than she used to. With an accent, I blurted out. An accent? A slight cottony accent. My dearest, every London child gets a slight cockney accent. It'll be much worse when she goes to school and meets lots of other kids. We don't talk cockney. Where did she get it from? Who can she be getting it from except from... I couldn't say the name. <laughs> the baker? The milkman? The dustman? The coal man? The window cleaner? Want any more? <sighs> I suppose not. I laughed rather ruefully. Do you know what I think you should do to put your mind at rest? What? Take Chris along to see old Dr. Webster tomorrow. Let him have a little talk with her. Do you think she's ill in her mind? Good heavens, no! But when we come across something that's beyond us, it's as well to take some professional advice. The next day, I took Christine to see Dr. Webster. I left her in the waiting room while I told him briefly about Harry. He nodded sympathetically, then he said, It's a fairly unusual case, Mrs. James, but by no means unique. I've had several cases of children's imaginary companions becoming so real to them the parents got the jitters. And Christina's a rather lonely little girl, isn't she? She doesn't know any other children. We're new to the neighborhood, you see, but that will be put right when she starts school. And I think you'll find that when she goes to school and meets other children, these fantasies will disappear. You see, every child needs company of her own age, and if she doesn't get it, she invents it. Older people who are lonely talk to themselves. That doesn't mean they're crazy, just that they need to talk to someone. A child is more practical. Seems silly to talk to oneself, she thinks. So she invents someone to talk to. I honestly don't think you've anything to worry about. That's what my husband says. I'm sure he does. Still, I'll have a chat with Christine as you've brought her. Leave us alone together. I went to the waiting room to fetch Chris. She was at the window. She said... Harry's watching. Where, Chris? I said quietly. There, by the rose bush. The doctor had a bush of white roses in his garden. 
There's no one there, I said. Chris gave me a glance of unchildlike scorn. Dr. Webster wants to see you now, darling, I said shakily. You remember him, don't you? He gave you sweets when you were getting better from the chicken box. Yes, she said, and went willingly enough to the doctor's surgery. I waited restlessly. Faintly, I heard their voices through the wall. Heard the doctor's chuckle, Christine's high peal of laughter. She was talking away to the doctor in a way she didn't talk to me. When they came out, he said, Nothing wrong with her whatsoever. She's just an imaginative little monkey. A word of advice, Mrs. James. Let her talk about Harry. Let her become accustomed to confiding in you. I gather you've shown some disapproval of this brother of hers, so she doesn't talk much to you about him. He makes wooden toys, doesn't he, Chris? <laughs> yes, Harry makes wooden toys. And he can read and write, can't he? And swim and climb trees and paint pictures. Harry can do everything. He's a wonderful brother. Her little face flushed with adoration. The doctor patted me on the shoulder and said, Harry sounds like a very nice brother for her. He's even got red hair like you, Chris, hasn't he? Harry's got red hair, said Chris proudly. Redder than my hair, and he's nearly as tall as Daddy, only thinner. He's as tall as you, Mommy. He's 14. He says he's tall for his age. What is tall for his age? Mommy will tell you about that as you walk home, said Dr. Webster. Now, goodbye, Mrs. James. Don't worry, just let her prattle. Goodbye, Chris. Give my love to Harry. Another week passed. It was Harry, Harry all the time. The day before she was to start school, Chris said, Not going to school. You're going to school tomorrow, Chris. You're looking forward to it. You know you are. There will be lots of other little girls and boys. Harry says he can't come. You won't want Harry at school. He'll... I tried hard to follow the doctor's advice and appear to believe in Harry. He'll be too old. He'd feel silly among little boys and girls. A great lad of fourteen? I won't go to school without Harry. I want to be with Harry. She began to weep. Loudly and painfully. She slept with tear stains still on her face. It was still daylight. I went to the window to draw the curtains. Golden shadows and long strips of sunshine in the garden. Then, almost like a dream, the long, thin, clear-cut shadow of a boy near the white roses. Like a madwoman, I opened the window and shouted, Harry! Harry! I thought I saw a glimmer of red hair among the roses, like close red curls on a boy's head. Then, there was nothing. Next day, I started on my secret mission. 
I took a bus to town and went to the big, gaunt building I hadn't visited for over five years. Then, Jim and I had gone together. The top floor of the building belonged to the Greythorn Adoption Society. I climbed the four flights and knocked on the familiar door with its scratched paint. Miss Cleaver, a tall, thin, gray-haired woman, with a charming smile, a plain, kindly face, and a very wrinkled brow, rose to meet me. "'Mrs. James, how nice to see you again. How's Christine?' "'She's very well, Miss Cleaver. I'd better get straight to the point. I know you don't normally divulge the origin of a child to its adopters and vice versa, but I I must know who Christine is.' "'Sorry, Mrs. James,' she began. "'Our rules, please.' Let me tell you the whole story, then you'll see I'm not just suffering from vulgar curiosity. I told her about Harry. When I'd finished, she said, It's very queer, very queer indeed. Mrs. James, I'm going to break my rule for once. I'm going to tell you in confidence where Christine came from. She was born in a very poor part of London. There were four in the family. Mother, father, mother, son, and Christine herself. Son? Yes, he was 14 when... When it happened. When what happened? Let me start at the beginning. The parents hadn't really wanted Christine. The family lived in one room at the top of an old house, which should have been condemned by the sanitary inspector in my opinion. It was difficult enough when there were only three of them, but with a baby as well, life became a nightmare. The mother was a neurotic creature, slatternly unhappy. After she'd had the baby, she took no interest in it. The brother, however, adored the little girl from the start. He got into trouble for cutting school so he could look after her. One morning, in the small hours, a woman on the ground floor saw something fall past her window and heard a thud on the ground. She went out to look. The son of the family was there on the ground. Christine was in his arms. The boy's neck was broken. He was dead. Christine was blue in the face, but still breathing faintly. The woman woke the household, sent for the police and the doctor. Then they went up to the top room. They had to break down the door, which was locked and sealed inside. An overpowering smell of gas greeted them, in spite of the open window. They found husband and wife dead in bed, and a note from the husband saying, I can't go on. I'm going to kill them all. It's the only way. The police concluded that he'd sealed up the door and windows, and turned on the gas when his family was asleep. Then laying beside his wife until he drifted into unconsciousness and death. 
but the son must have wakened. Perhaps he struggled with the door, but couldn't open it. He'd been too weak to shout. All he could do was pluck away the seals from the window, open it, and fling himself out, holding his adored little sister tightly in his arms. So her brother saved her life and died himself? I said. Yes, he was a very brave boy. Perhaps he thought not so much of saving her as keeping her with him. Oh dear, that's, that sounds ungenerous. I didn't mean to be. Miss Cleaver, what was his name? I'll have to look that up for you. She referred to one of her many files and said at last. The, the family's name was Jones. And the 14-year-old brother was called... Harold. Did he have red hair? I murmured. (laughs) That I don't know, Mrs. James. But it's Harry. The the boy was Harry. What does it mean? I can't understand it. It's not easy, but I think perhaps deep in her unconscious mind, Christine has always remembered Harry, the companion of her babyhood. We don't think of children as having much memory, but there must be images of the past tucked away somewhere in the little heads. Christine didn't invent this Harry. She remembers him so clearly that she's almost brought him to life again. May I have the address of the house where they lived? The house seemed deserted. It was filthy and derelict. But one thing made me stare and stare. There was a tiny garden. A scatter of bright, uneven grass splashed the bald brown patches of earth. But the little garden had one strange glory that none of the other houses in the poor, sad street possessed. A bush of white roses. A voice startled me. What are you doing here? It was an old woman, peering from the ground floor window. I thought the house was empty, I said. Should be. Been condemned. They can't get me out. Nowhere else to go. Won't go. The others went quickly enough after it happened. No one else wants to come. They say the place is haunted, so it is. What's the fuss about? Life and death, they're very close. You get to know when you're old, alive or dead. What's the difference? She looked at me with yellowish, bloodshot eyes and said, I saw him fall past my window. That's where he fell. Among the roses. He still comes back, I see him. He won't go away until he gets her. Who, who are you talking about? Harry Jones. Nice boy he was, red hair, very thin. Too determined, though, always got in his way. Loved Christine too much, I thought. Died among the roses. Used to sit down there with her for hours by the roses. Then he died there. Or do people die? The church ought to give us an answer, but it doesn't. Not one you can believe. Go away, will you? This place isn't for you. It's for the dead who aren't dead, and the living who aren't alive. 
The crazy eyes staring at me beneath the matted white fringe of hair frightened me. Mad people are terrifying. One can pity them, but one is still afraid. I murmured, I'll go now. Goodbye. And tried to hurry across the hard, hot pavements, although my legs felt heavy and half-paralyzed, as in a nightmare. The sun blazed down on my head, but I was hardly aware of it. I lost all sense of time or place as I stumbled on. Then I heard something that chilled my blood. A clock struck three. At three o'clock, I was supposed to be at the school gates waiting for Christine. Where was I now? How near the school? What bus should I take? I made frantic inquiries of passers-by, who looked at me fearfully, as I had looked at the old woman. At last, I caught the right bus, and, sick with dust, petrol fumes, and fear, reached the school. I ran across the hot, empty playground. In a classroom, the young teacher in white was gathering her books together. I've come for Christine James. I'm her mother. I'm so sorry I'm late. Where is she? I gasped. Christine James? The girl frowned then, said brightly. Oh yes, I remember. The pretty little red-haired girl. That's all right, Mrs. James. Her brother called for her. How like they are, aren't they? And so devoted. It's rather sweet to see a boy of that age so fond of his baby sister. Has your husband got red hair, like the two children? What did her brother say? I asked faintly. He didn't say anything. When I spoke to him, he just smiled. They'll be home by now, I should think. I say, do you feel all right? Yes, thank you. I must go home. I ran all the way home through the burning streets. Chris! Christine, where are you? Chris! Chris! Sometimes, even now, I hear my own voice of the past screaming through the cold house. Christine! Chris! I rushed out into the garden. The sun struck me like a hot blade. The roses glared whitely. The air was so still. I seemed to stand in timelessness, placelessness. For a moment, I seemed very near to Christine, although I couldn't see her. Then the roses danced before my eyes and turned red. The world turned red. Blood red. Wet red. I fell through redness to blackness to nothingness. For weeks, I was in bed with sunstroke, which turned to brain fever. During that time, Jim and the police searched for Christine in vain. 
The futile search continued for months. The papers were full of the strange disappearance of the red-haired child. The teacher described the brother who had called for her. There were newspaper stories of kidnapping, baby snatching, child murders. Then the sensation died down. It became just another unsolved mystery in police files. And only two people knew what had happened. An old, crazed woman living in a derelict house. And myself. Years have passed, but I walk in fear. Such ordinary things make me afraid. Sunshine, sharp shadows on the grass, white roses, children with red hair. And the name, Harry. Such an ordinary name. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed these stories as much as I did. As for the sound you hear, that is my crackly candle back in business. I had a lovely chat with listener Alicia on Instagram about how much we love these things. So this one is for you, Alicia. I couldn't do what I do without my amazing patrons. You guys seriously saved me this month. Thank you so much. And welcome to my newest patrons, Ryan, Vinny, and Gio Mangini, Ashley Barr, Ryan Bareko, and Michael Sarles. You know what time it is, folks. Bring it in for your over-the-airwaves hug. Love you guys. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scary to Sleep for discussions about the episodes or just to share some cool scary stuff. You can join the Facebook page, facebook.com slash groups slash Scary to Sleep. It's been pretty active lately too, you guys. I really appreciate it. I don't have, I have obviously been busy this week, so I haven't had time to respond to a lot of stuff, but you guys have been cracking away and I really appreciate that and it warms my heart like no other. So for merch, I will leave a link to our Teespring store. I wear my SYTS tank top all the time. It's so comfy, and it's not one of those paper-thin things either. It's soft and amazing. Remember, you can submit any stories to scarytosleep at gmail.com, or you can go to scarytosleep.com to the contact tab, or just feel free to say hi if you'd like. I think that's all for now. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. <laughs>